and welcome to The Convex Conversation with me, journalist Helen Fospero. Today's guest is a former Royal Marine Commando. He's won 11 medals, five of them gold at the Invictus Games. He's a peak performance coach, author and internationally acclaimed motivational speaker. Extraordinary when you discover Mark Ormrod was pronounced dead twice at the scene when he stepped on and triggered an improvised explosive device during a routine foot patrol in Afghanistan in the early hours of Christmas Eve 2007. Thanks to the swift action of those around him and the intervention of the medical emergency response team, he survived. But he woke up three days later in hospital in Birmingham, both legs amputated above the knee and his right arm amputated above the elbow. He was the first UK triple amputee to survive the conflict. Mark is determined to live each day to the full, refusing to let his situation and circumstances define him. And as if any proof were really needed, he's just won ITV's Pride of Britain's Fundraiser of the Year Award. Mark, uh, many congratulations. You've been all over the place in the last few days. I'm sure you're riding high. Tell me a bit about the Pride of Britain Awards. They were phenomenal. You know, the night itself was out of this world. Everything was just next level. There was nothing I think that they could have done any better from the guests to the presenters to the food to the location. Just it was just really nice to, you know, taste that world and be involved in that and be around such phenomenal people. It's a glittering occasion. I bet the red carpet was quite something, was it? It was, yeah. I mean, luckily the weather held out because that was all outdoors, but yeah, walking down there We were told before we hit the red carpet, soak it up, enjoy yourself. The security will try and usher you on. Just give them a nice smile and go, yeah, we're moving fast and and just enjoy it. And and that's exactly what we did. You know, it was, I think we were on there for an hour. It took about an hour to walk down there. Then we hung around at the end for a little bit and watched all the celebs come in. And there was this really cool little row of of cadets that were there waving union flags. From that minute, literally getting out the vehicle to getting back in the vehicle at the end of the night was just mind-blowing. And I'm guessing you didn't really think you were going to win because generally you strike me as a very humble person and I'm not sure that that would have crossed your mind. So what was that moment like when they were announcing fundraiser of the year and it was you? I'm going to be very honest with you here. It was phenomenal and it, it was overwhelming and it was surreal. And, and a lot of people may not expect me to say this. I also felt a little bit guilty. Did you? Why? All the other categories, if you watch it on TV, they knew that they had won before they went to the event. They were surprised by celebrities at their house or at their work. They were there. They knew they were going up on stage and they knew they were going to say their piece and get their time up there. But with the fundraiser of the year... There were 17 of us who won regional fundraiser of the year awards. And then we all came to London and no one knew who was winning until it was announced. And in the morning, we all met each other for the first time. And we watched a 20 minute video that very briefly detailed each one of our stories. And I think as I'm getting older, I'm getting a lot more emotional because I sat in the back of the room and I found it very difficult to hold tears back. And I never get like that. The only time I think I've ever cried was at watching in the Terminator 2 when he goes in the lava. That got me going. So I don't really get like emotional about things. And I sat there listening to some of these stories and they, they were heartbreaking. And I actually went back to my hotel room after my wife was up there getting her makeup done. 
And I said, Becky, I don't care anymore. Like I came here, like, come on, let's win, let's do it, let's do it, let's bring the, the prize home. And after that video, I was like, do you know what? I'm not bothered. There's some really cool people downstairs that have done some phenomenal things. I think we should all go on the stage and we should all get the big award, but we couldn't, unfortunately. And so when they announced it, yeah, it was surreal and you got to go up there and be in front of all those people and say your piece. But at the same time, I felt bad that there were 16 other people that I would have loved to have stood by my side that weren't on the stage. I was very conflicted, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I completely get that. And all of the stories really in Pride of Britain are very difficult to choose a winner from. I would hate to be on the judging panel of something Mm -hmm. like that. They're all moving. They're all very worthy. But nevertheless, you did end up on that stage with with Dame Joan Collins. And what was what was that bit like on stage? And how how did you feel inside? It's all a bit of a blur, to be honest. Yeah, I can imagine. It's not new to me to be on a stage in front of people. I work as a speaker. I've done it for over 10 years. But I think in that room, when you've got people like Simon Cowell staring at you and R&B singer Neo and, and all these people, and you're in front of them all, and you've got Carol Vorder and Ashley Banzer up there, then you get Dame Joan Collins and Dame Sarah Story present you an award. You just kind of look around like, what am I doing here? It's insane. These people are like super successful at what they do. And here I am in the mix, you know, getting an award from them. So it was a bit of a blur, to be honest. That's why I really enjoyed watching the show last weekend from the comfort of my home where I could look at it from a different perspective and really just take it all in you know and were the kids at home mark watching on the sofa too they watched it the next day because it was on quite late for them but yeah they've seen it my boy actually ran in this morning he was watching something on youtube and an advert for it came on and he came in and said dad the pride of britain advert just came on it's a lovely award to have but tell us Mm. a bit about what your award recognizes and some of the extraordinary fundraising that you've done i've been involved in this world i was discharged from the royal marines in 2010 because of my injuries and was fortunate that i got a job straight away with what is now known as the royal marines charity and i did that for 10 years so i was fundraising i was helping other people with their fundraising i was trying to raise awareness of the charity I was doing my own events and taking part in other people's events. So I've been doing it for 10 years plus. But I left that job in February this year. And 12 months ago, November last year, a new charity that I'd been involved with for a while officially formed as a charity, a charity called Reorg. And I thought what would be nice is if I could do a, a very small event. It wasn't so much about money. It was more about driving awareness to their website and their, their social media to let people know what they were doing. So I thought if I do this little event, try and raise a thousand pounds it's going to get some eyeballs on their website so i decided that was going to shave my beard off and i got my youngest daughter evelyn to do it and she's really cute and sassy on camera and she's really natural at it you know and people love her so i got her to shave it off she ended up shaving all my hair and everything doing what evie does on camera and we got the money in like 32 hours i was speaking to my coach ben who trained me for the invictus games he's a former royal marine as well and he said look you know people are in lockdown you've you've raised this money quite quickly let's do some other events well he said another event to try and go with the momentum and he suggested that we do a 5k run now i hate running even when i had legs i hated it i would only ever do it if i had to i just don't feel i was built for it i get very bored of it so i try to avoid it at all costs so 
he suggested a run and I thought, okay, this is the whole reason we fundraise because we do things that are challenging that we don't really like to raise awareness and money for these causes. So I said, okay, let's do the run, dusted off my running blades, which were in my garage. I ran for three years, went down to a local park where it was safe and we were within the regulations through COVID and we started training. And I said, when we get to 5K money raised, I'll run 5K. We did the first run, we were filming it And I just happened when I got tired to lose concentration, hit the deck really hard, do like almost like the front splits and take a big chunk out of the tarmac. And we got it on video. So we uploaded the video, said that, you know, it doesn't always go smoothly, but you got to pick yourself back up. And, you know, we're doing this for a good cause. And that video went viral. I think it's at like 32 million hits right now. Oh my goodness. And the local media got on board, the national media got on board. And within 24 hours, we had that 5,000 pounds. So I thought, great, I needed six weeks to train for this. But I said on my social media, when we get to 5K, I'll do it. So we had no time to train. So we literally just went straight into the run. My legs weren't set up right. My body wasn't ready for it. Nothing was right. But we just promised we'd do it. So we did it. So we did the 5K run. That took the fundraise into, I think, just over £200,000, which is when I was ready to stop. But then Ben suggested again that because we had some momentum why don't we do another event now he had just recently started an open water swimming group called three boys down in plymouth it has huge positive effects on on your mental health if you've never done open water sea swimming with that kind of community the cold water the exercise everything combined is so beneficial but i hadn't swam in the sea i've done a little bit i need to make some time for that it's really good for you isn't it oh yeah it's phenomenal but i hadn't been in the sea for years but we went in there The first time we went in, it was six degrees. And I didn't know if that was cold or not, but I went in in my shorts and understood very quickly that it is cold. Yeah, that's pretty cold. And then we started training for this swim, but this time we had time to train. I think we did about seven practice swims and then we did a one kilometer open water sea swim from a place called Drake's Island in Plymouth into a place called Firestone Bay. And then that took the fundraising to over 400,000 pounds. I think 440 at the time. So then Ben said, well, while we've got momentum, why don't we do another event? Now, the charity that we're raising money for, they work with the serving military, the veteran community and the emergency services. So I thought, well, why don't we highlight the emergency services a bit and we'll do a 99.9 mile bike ride because I've got a specially adapted hand cycle. So then we started training for that. Now, we did that probably three or four weeks ago and... Within the first mile, I really wished we hadn't committed to 99.9 miles because it was horrendous. Like six miles incline, straight out the gate, 24 hours without sleep, 16 hours riding, 99.9 miles ridden, 11,000 meters of elevation, 45 bananas, 15 flapjacks, 800 liters of isotonic drink. I don't know what it, it was, but it was a lot of stuff and it was brutal. It was a brutal event, but that has now taken fundraising. We've still got, I know I've got about another 20,000 plus gift aid to come in, but we're just under 600 grand now. That is absolutely awesome. And you know what? Ben's just going to keep you going, isn't he? Because now I've got a feeling, I've never met Ben. I've got a feeling he's got his eye on the prize for a million. So I don't think this is over for you, Mark. This is what's great about it. We've got one more event to go this year, a 24-hour jujitsu based what we call a rollathon and this is where we're inviting other people to come in and to get involved and to meet the team and see what we do and see what we're about but next year to try and get to that million pounds because he has suggested that we've taken the 5k run and the 1k swim we've set 
in the dates, exactly the same dates that we did our events this year. And we're going to invite other people to do them and to fundraise. And we're going to aim it at people that are maybe not confident enough to do these kind of things. We'll build programs for them, support them, hold their hands, encourage them, and try and get them to step outside of their comfort zone to do something that they perhaps think they're not capable of and show them that actually they are. That sounds extraordinary. And tell us a little bit, Mark, about how that money that you're raising will help Reorg and what it will actually be used for. I just got an update from the founder. I'm a trustee of the charity. We got a trustees brief sent out and we've supported over 105 people so far. And this is a great problem to have. But because none of this was expected, we didn't actually know what to do with the money yet. We're trying to figure that out now. We've got trustees meetings coming up, trying to figure out going forward. But so far, we've supported over 100 people with things like 12-month gym memberships. So you've got veterans and emergency services members who have perhaps poor mental health, have ended up in a bad place, can't afford a gym membership, but understand that it's going to have a huge impact on their mental health positively. And so we've supported them into that. We've got people kit and equipment if they want to start Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. We send them out these gift packets with all their equipment in, their geese, their rash guards, anything they need to get started. We have supported academies by matting out their areas. So they've got a specific area to train Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu that maybe they couldn't have afforded before and they can bring people in and now they have a facility to train those people. But going forward, we have lots of meetings that we've got to have and we're going to decide as this money does come in. Like I said, no one expected this. So it's a nice problem to have, but we've got to figure out now how we're going to best spend this money to support our real community. That's so important and I wish you the best of luck with it. That sounds fantastic. You're you're making a difference and that's what's so important in life, isn't it? I'm just wondering, it's clear to me, you know, your drive, your ambition, your determination post what happened to you in Afghanistan is, is really easy for all of us to see and I suppose we've all been familiar with you post what happened out there. But before the horrors of Afghanistan, what was Mark like what kind of drive and passion did you have in those days i think it was very similar when i was growing up i started kickboxing and muay thai when i was about 13 and i was quite a big kid and i always knew that i wanted to compete but for some reason because of my size and weight i'd always compete with adults and i think i had plenty of competitions over the years but when i stepped up to i'm not going to say professional but to fight on shows in rings in front of audiences I think out of 12 fights I had, I only ever lost one because in my mind, I just couldn't see myself losing. It was a natural thing where I was like, stepping through the ropes was just like a process. I'd already won in my mind, which meant that I would do whatever it took while I was in there to win in reality. And that served me really well. I'm not sure where that mindset came from, but when I joined the Royal Marines at 17 and was pushed so hard physically and mentally, I very quickly understood that when that little voice in your head tells you, oh, you know, it hurts, you're in pain, take the easy route, stop now, this isn't worth doing. When that little voice creeps in, you're not even halfway physically to being at exhaustion and you just have to figure a way to conquer that voice and keep pushing forward. And it's literally, for me, a case of just putting one foot in front of the other until you you go over the finish line. And, you know, the Royal Marines really boosted my mindset and cemented it and let me know not just me as an individual but human beings what they're capable of doing 
if they have the right kind of mindset. It's like a superpower. When you discover it and you you just realize I can do anything I want to do as long as I'm smart, you know, and I set goals, I get myself around the right kind of people and I work every day towards achieving what I want to achieve. I, I can do it. No matter how many people tell me I can't, no matter how many circumstances are stacked against me, if I approach this the right way and do the right things, then you can do anything. That's a mindset I'm sure that has served you very well over the last few years and helped you cope with awful situations really that I'm humbled by what you do and what you achieve and what you've managed to carry on with. It's really, well, I guess humbling. It makes me feel slightly choked up, Mark, to think what you went through. And here you are today, just living life to the full and making such a difference. Can you take us back to Helmand province and, and, and what happened to you back in 2007? I deployed to Afghanistan with my unit, 40 Commando, on the 7th of September 2007 for what was supposed to be a six-month tour of duty. I was based out of a place called Ford Operating Base Robinson in Helmand Province. And our job was, like all those units that had come before us, to go out into our area of responsibility, to look after the civilians that lived there, to dominate the ground take the fight to the enemy and try our very best to provide a better quality of life for the people that lived there while taking care of the bad guys that lived there. And it was nothing new to us. You know, I was in the Royal Marines. It's what you joined to do. I deployed to Iraq back in in 2003 and did a, a similar job. So we knew what we were there to do. We were doing it very successfully for the first three, maybe three and a half months. And then on Christmas Eve, me and a group of my friends were given a brief by headquarters on what was to be our next routine foot patrol. Nothing out of the ordinary. We'd done a bunch of these in the three months that we had been there. And we had huge success defeating the enemy and helping the guys, the locals that lived there. So we had no cause for concern. We went back to our compound once we knew what we were doing we started prepping all of our kit and equipment like we'd done a million times before we uh, formed up by the rear entrance of the camp and got ready to leave on our patrol and the idea of this patrol was that we would leave the rear entrance of our camp in two sections with eight men in each section one would go north one would go south we would then patrol the immediate perimeter of the camp pushing no more than 300 meters out then we would meet at the front entrance of the camp, so now the opposite side, and secure the location, close things down and finish up for the day. So in terms of patrolling, this was nothing. Before we had done this, we were pushing out two, three, four miles, six, seven, eight, nine hours. We had missions, disrupt this enemy position, confiscate this weapons cache, whatever it was. This was literally two groups of eight men leave the back of camp at the back door, walk around and then come back in the front door just to keep up our momentum and show the enemy that we were out there every day doing our job. So really, really basic low-level stuff. Towards the end of the patrol, the section that I was in were on a high piece of ground called the North Fort. Just beneath us, if you look down from where we were, you could see Ford Operating Base Robinson. And then quite some way beneath that was the other group of men we'd left with earlier in the day. So being so high up, we were in a very advantageous position tactically. The other group were in a very vulnerable position. So we were tasked with giving them overwatch and protection while they got back into camp. They would get behind the perimeter wall where they were safe. They'd return the favor. 
we come off the high ground, go back in the camp and finish up. Again, standard, basic, easy, low-level stuff we've done a million times. We all started getting into position. I was second in command of the section. So the section commander took his half. I took my half. And normally what you would do in this situation is you would take cover behind a building, a wall, a tree, a shrub, whatever you can find what we call cover from view and cover from fire. You know, to give yourself the best form of protection you can. Now, being up on this high piece of ground, we didn't have buildings or walls or any of that kind of stuff to use. And I saw a little shallow bowl about four meters in front of me when I thought if we get in that bowl and that dip in the ground, we get on our bellies, because we're so high up, no one's going to be able to see us. And even if they know we're there, it's going to be very hard to attack us. And it's going to be a lot easier. We're fighting down a hill, so we're going to have the, the advantage in that scenario so we jumped in the bowl the lads all started taking up their fire positions i stood back i had some checks i had to do to make sure that we were tight and, and as well defended as we could be when they were happy they turned around they gave me the thumbs up i did a few more checks again just to make sure that we were as well defended as we possibly could be and when they were happy and i was happy i started walking over towards the position that i'd selected for myself when i got there I went to get down onto my belly and when I put my right knee on the floor that was the moment that I knelt on and detonated an improvised explosive device. Do you remember any of that or not? I've no idea whether you've got any memory after putting your knee down. Did you realise when your knee was there that there was a device underneath? So I remember everything. Do you? In graphic detail up until the point where the helicopter landed to evacuate me and it it's called an improvised explosive device for a reason because there's no real standard variation of these things. So it's, I'm sure there are mines like what you see in a movie when you stand on them and they click and then there's a little second pause and boom. But this wasn't like that. I literally knelt on the ground. And the next thing I know, there's a huge explosion. All the sand and, and dirt and dust from the terrain we were working in had created this giant dust cloud. And so I couldn't see anything. And I had no idea what I had just done. My instinct was that we had been attacked. I thought, you know, we'd had a, a rocket or a mortar bomb rain down in our position. That had erupted, exploded nearby, which is what caused this dust cloud. And my fight or flight kicked in. You know, I'm getting ready for a, another firefight now, thinking we've been attacked from somewhere. As soon as I can see what's going on, ID the enemy, start shooting and try and get everyone out there as quick as we possibly can. But I can't see anything because of the dust. I can hear the rest of the section shouting and screaming, trying to figure out what's going on, probably thinking the same thing that I thought. So in that moment, I said, okay, right, listen, we need to try and stay calm, wait for the dust cloud to settle. When I can see, I can assess the situation, figure out what's going on, and then start making some calls on the ground there, and then try and neutralize this strength and get the section out. The dust cloud got to about mid chest height where I could just about start to see again and, and I start looking around you know panicking and just praying that none of my friends have been hurt or killed but I couldn't see anybody I think they had been blasted out of the area by the IED and then a couple seconds after that the dust cloud got to the floor hit the ground and disappeared that was when I looked down to where my legs should have been and saw that they had been completely ripped off from the knees down which is around about the time that i realized we weren't under attack actually i was the guy that stood on the id lost both my legs and quite possibly 
was about to lose my life as well. Like almost speechless, Mark, to hear you actually describe it is just extraordinary, really. And there was quite an incredible rescue operation, wasn't there? Because I guess you could have so easily died out of there with injuries like that. Yeah, absolutely. We're trained in that situation not to let your emotions take over. So what you want to do in that situation when you see your friend hurt is just go running in there and try and help him. But we're trained not to do that because you risk setting off other devices which could potentially hurt or kill you or further injure or kill me. And there were actually six of these things that were uncovered from the blast. So we were in a minefield at the point. So nobody could come running in to save me. But what the guys did do, which is phenomenal, is they stuck to procedure to the letter. Like nobody froze, nobody freaked out, nobody got emotional. Everyone did exactly what they had to do perfectly. Like one guy straight on the radio calling in the Kazivat, giving a nine-liner, getting a medic ready to scramble out to me. One guy's coordinating all-round defense in case there's a small arms attack with AK-47s. One guy's on his belly with a bayonet out, prodding the ground, marking a safe route for when the medic got there. Everyone just kicked straight into what they were trained to do. And because they did that, when the medic came out of the camp, he could run straight into me because he knew the safe route. He knew he was safe and he was well defended by anyone that wasn't doing anything. They were defending a position. And he got in there and he administered morphine. He started putting tourniquets on my legs. I also, you know, I didn't say just now, but I, my right arm was completely shredded as well. It was still attached to my body, but all the bone in my upper and lower arm was, was shattered. So it was completely unsalvageable. But he put a tourniquet on there and got me to tighten it up to stem the bleeding. And he then put me on a stretcher as quickly as he possibly could to get me out of the area because a helicopter had been called from Camp Bastion, which was about a 30 minute flight away to come in with all the medical equipment to try and save me. Now, when he put me on a stretcher, because of the nature of my injuries, because these are traumatic amputations, not surgical, these aren't clean and they're not pretty. So I still had, my arm was kind of attached, but hanging off. My left leg was completely gone. My right leg was still attached by some sort of nerve or muscle tendon. So we had to pick up my foot and put it on my stomach and cradle my hand down by my ribs and put me on this stretcher with all these, this just stuff hanging out everywhere and I'm bleeding. And somehow they eventually got me out of this crater. Now, this was no longer a, a shallow bowl. It was like a, I think it was a 12 foot by 15 foot crater, the report said. They got me out of there, got me in a vehicle. The guy driving starts hammering it back to camp as fast as he can. I only found this out a couple of years ago, but on the way back to the camp, the Taliban blocked the road with a truck. They tried stopping us getting back into camp and they were all pointing and laughing as we were trying to get past. And luckily the driver, you know, managed to swerve around it. He starts climbing back up this hill to go in the front entrance to the camp. And then me and the medic fell out the back of the vehicle. You fell out of the back? Because it was a really steep incline oh and it's very God. bad terrain. And, and you're still conscious at this point, Mark? Yes. So I saw the doctor go out. I started going out after him, but the driver swang around, reached out and ended up grabbing my femur bone out of my right leg and held me half in, half out of this vehicle. He left the medic because the other group that we left with earlier in the day were at the bottom of the hill. So he was safe. He had eight heavily armed men that were going to look after him. 
they drove me to the helicopter landing site and the last thing I remember is the Chinook landing, the sandstorm it creates from the propellers and then the heat of the exhaust beating down on me and that's when I, I blacked out and that's the last thing I can remember. And did they, in the Chinook, I was reading somewhere when I was researching you, Mark, that they did something in the Chinook, a procedure that really helped keep you alive? They did, yeah. I showed no signs of life when they got me on the back, no pulse. They couldn't get intravenous lines into me because my veins had collapsed. When they put an oxygen mask on me, it didn't steam up to show that I was breathing, so they said I was dead. And there was another casualty on the Chinook, so they put all their attention on trying to save this guy's life. When one of the medics walked past me to get some equipment to go work on the other guy, he said he saw my eye flutter, which meant that my heart was still beating. So he alerted the rest of the crew. And three days prior to this, the army medical field had just given the green light for this brand new technique to be used, where if you can't get intravenous lines into somebody's veins, you can drill into their tibia and fibula and put it straight in the bone. Problem being, I didn't have any tibias or fibias because they had been ripped off from the IED. So these medics, without ever having tried this before or ever used the original technique on a live casualty, decided that they were going to try and drill into my hip bone and then put the intravenous lines in that way. And that's what they did. The first attempt was not successful. They didn't pull the skin tight enough and the line didn't bite. But the second time they tightened the skin, put the line in, they bit into my hip Within about three minutes, they said that I was awake and responsive and I was coherently answering their questions. I wasn't babbling and, and moaning. They were asking me questions and I was answering. So they, they literally brought me back from death using a technique that none of them had, had ever even tried before, but they were brave enough to give a go that day. That's absolutely extraordinary. And then you were flown to Birmingham and obviously had to begin that journey of coming to terms with the fact that you'd lost legs and an arm and mm -hmm. just wonder mentally mark how you came to terms with that and how you began to rebuild life so to begin with you know as i'm sure you can imagine it wasn't easy but i was fortunate in that i was surrounded from the minute i came out of a coma a three-day coma i was surrounded with really good support from the doctors, the nurses, the Royal Marines, my family. So everything that I needed to be taken care of was taken care of. So all I had to focus on was regaining my strength and getting better. So that was a huge advantage for me because I could then just try and get my mind right, focus on how I was going to deal with this and then start putting some sort of plan together of what I was going to do when I was strong enough. Now, three weeks into my recovery, a, a doctor visited me. And, you know, this is, sounds like some kind of a movie. It's very cliche, but he came in and gave me the good news that I'll never walk again. This guy had been an amputation specialist for over 33 years. And he had told me that he'd never met anybody who had just one leg missing above the knee that had any success being a full-time prosthetic user. Because he said prosthetics were too painful they were too difficult to use and they took so much energy that most people just threw them in a cupboard and sat in a wheelchair and, and that was their life. That was somebody with one leg missing and I lost both my legs above the knee and my dominant arm, which to me said, you have zero chance. And I was 24 years old. 
You're only 24. Oh my gosh, I didn't realise you were only 24. Not that age really matters, but such a such a young man. Yeah, and, and I'd gone from being six foot two, you know, I was 16 stone. I was at probably the peak of my physical fitness. And there I was lying in a hospital bed. I had a huge hole in my left hand. So I only had the use of two fingers, both legs above the knee, dominant arm above the elbow. Now being told, this is your life. 24 years old, you've got another, what, 80 odd years. I'm quite optimistic that way. You've got <laughs> a good too. 80 odd years left and you're going to be in a wheelchair. And that, I, I have no shame in being honest. I always am honest when I say this to people. That was the first time in my life when I've ever contemplated suicide. I'm lying in a hospital bed, three weeks post-injury, only got the use of two fingers, 24 years old, career gone, I know that. Everything that I identified with, taken away from me in a heartbeat, and then getting the good news that I'm going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life, being washed, fed, driven around, and, and all that. And I didn't want to hear that at that stage of my recovery. I just took a real bad turn and you know, just went into a really dark and lonely place where I ignored phone calls, ignored visitors, was angry, mad, just hated everyone and everything because I thought that's what my life was going to be. But then we look at you, fast forward, we look at you at the Invictus Games and your gold medal wins and your fundraising and all the extraordinary things you do. So what was the tipping point, Mark, when you realised, you know what, that ain't for me and I'm not spending the rest of my life in a wheelchair and I am going to get out there and live a good life. So about a week after that gentleman came to visit me, I had another visit in hospital and it was by an army sergeant who had lost both his legs above the knee in Iraq in 2005 and he walked in my room wearing prosthetics and he spent about six hours with me. He talked me through the whole process, took the legs off, put the legs on told me about his journey and the kind of things I could expect to experience over the next couple of months. And that really lifted me up. And then I went out and found a mentor in America who had been hit by a train in 2002 when he was 15, who was a triple amputee, almost identical injuries to mine. And I saw what he was doing. And then I just had these two guys, one of them I had met, one of them I had observed. And I saw these two guys doing phenomenal things with very similar injuries in a very similar situation to mine and that's where my mind just went ka-chink right I've seen it I know it's achievable I know it's going to suck and it's going to be hard work but I've seen the proof so let's do this let's set some goals let's create some plans let's get some good people in my team and let's go out and do it and let's dominate and prove this guy wrong and that's what we did and I'm sure it wasn't an easy journey because I would imagine prosthetic limbs and getting used to them probably come with a lot of pain or discomfort and things like mm -hmm. that. But you've had to work hard, haven't you, to, to get to the point that you've got to now? Absolutely. There's always a danger when I tell this story that I make it seem very easy because I'm blasé about it. You know, Royal Marines training at 17, I thought pushed me to my absolute limit. This pushed me a little bit further. It is painful in the beginning when your body's adjusting, you're constantly covered in cuts and bruises and blisters and your whole body alignment changes, your back always feels sore. You just want to rip these things off, these prosthetics, as soon as you put them on because they don't feel natural. It takes a bilateral above knee amputee anywhere between 300 and 500% more energy to do anything than anybody else. 
So you're constantly sweating and you're constantly exhausted for the first 12, maybe 18 months. Everything in your life, you have to figure out from scratch. It's, it's like being a baby, but with 24 years experience. You just have to relearn everything. And that's exhausting, both physically and mentally. So it absolutely was not an easy journey. It was ridiculously hard for me to get to where I am now. But because I had seen it was possible and because I had a vision of what I wanted my life to be and I worked every day towards fulfilling that vision and I still do, it made it a lot more manageable and it gave me motivation and drive because I had things to aim for. The danger, not just in this situation, but in anyone's life is if you don't have anything to get out of bed for in the morning, some sort of vision for your life and things to strive and aim for, then you're just going to be on a hamster wheel. And that's when you get depressed and down and unmotivated because you've got no purpose. I created my purpose in the early days and that's what got me through it. I think you also talk about your drive for your family as well, wanting your family to be proud of you. And also I've heard you use the word burden before, that you didn't want to be a burden. No, absolutely. When you go from being a Royal Marine or whatever it is that you do in your life that you're super proud of and you're completely independent and you're used to helping other people. You know, you go to these foreign countries to help people you've never even met before. You go to these places when there are disasters to do humanitarian work to try and help people. And you're you're the guy that's used to always trying to help other people to all of a sudden be put in the situation where you're relying on not just one person, but numerous people to feed you, to wash you, to train you, to rehabilitate you, you know, make phone calls for you, shave you, crying out loud in the beginning, I had to get people to shave me. It's very hard. You foster this massive sense of guilt that you're doing that because it's just not who you are and who you relate to being. So yeah, I I definitely felt like I was going to be a burden for everyone in my life. And and that was a driver again to, to get my independence back so that I wasn't a burden to anybody. You wrote your story, Man Down, which is an award-winning book. And there's appetite for a film now, isn't there? Tell us about what's happening movie-wise, Mark. Yeah, just before lockdown, like February 2020, I'd been approached prior to that by a, a team, DAL Productions, who wanted to make Man Down into a movie. And we were just set to start before COVID became a thing. So in the background, we've been doing a lot of work the last 18 months. But yeah, we've done the first draft of the script. Things are moving fast now. The team are in place. There's loads of stuff going on behind the scenes, all the stuff that you never see happening when it comes to making a film a reality. But we're, we're getting very, very close now to starting shooting. And I can't wait. I'm on board, not just only as the, the guy who it's about, but as a, an associate producer. So I'll be on set every day helping to to direct and to mould it and hopefully make it as as true to life as I possibly can. Has it been cast yet? Who's playing you? We don't know yet. You don't know? Gosh. Without the first draft script completed, it's very hard to start asking agents what talent is available and no one knew what they were doing either because of COVID. So we've put some names together. We've got a short list, a very short list now. So we will start approaching people soon. But one of the things that I'm really keen to do with this is have my real life friends and people that I met in rehab as as extras 
background artists and, and that kind of stuff during the, the rehab and the hospital scenes. That's quite important to me. That's such a good idea. And where will we be able to see it or has a home not been found for it yet? If I have my way, you'll be able to see it in cinemas all across the world because we want to go for a cinematic release. We want to do this properly. I don't know if a film like this has been done before. A lot of it focuses on the war and the actual day of the injury, but we're really focusing on the rise back and the rehabilitation because I think everyone can relate to that. Not everyone can relate to going to war and being a soldier and getting injured, but everyone, especially in the last 18 months, can relate to facing struggle and adversity and difficulty and having to find a new identity for some people and find their purpose again for other people. So I wanted to make it as relatable to as many people as possible and everyone on the planet can relate to facing adversity. You're very much in demand as a motivational speaker and I think what you've said just really resonates because you stand there with a very different journey perhaps to me but clearly there's learnings through what's happened to you that would benefit my life because as you say everybody faces challenges don't they so what are the sort of key messages when you're standing in front of you know perhaps a corporate audience for example telling your story and giving some steer from your learnings what are the main messages that you try and get across to people to try and help them navigate whatever the challenges they may be facing the first thing is i just i just really wish almost like i could grab the world and shake it and let people understand what they're capable of achieving I think we're so conditioned to default to negativity, consciously or unconsciously, by all the things we consume on a daily basis, all the terrible stories on the news and all the the trolling and stuff on social media. And a lot of people lack the confidence in what they can actually do. So the, the first thing I just want people to understand is that they can achieve phenomenal things if they truly believe in themselves and their abilities, but also... If they set themselves goals, they get themselves around the right kind of people and they work every day towards achieving them. Having good people around you as well is a massively important thing. I can't remember where I heard this, but I was listening to a podcast once and someone said there are two kinds of people in the world. There's drains and radiators. There's people that will drain you, that can walk into a room and you could have 20 people in there having the time of their life and that one person walks in and everyone's head goes down and the morale get I call them morale vampires. The morale gets sucked out of the room. And, you know, for every solution, they've got a problem. And the other kind of person is a radiator, where you could have 20 people in a room who are all a little bit down, and that person walks in, and all of a sudden, everyone gets lifted up, and the energy increases. You need to get around more people like that. People that empower you, inspire you, motivate you, believe in you. You know, no matter how far out there the goal is that you're trying to achieve, they'll tell you you can do it rather than the people that would say, well, you know, maybe you should be a bit more realistic. You know, don't don't shoot too high because you'll get disappointed if you don't reach it. You know, you need to kind of limit those kind of people in your life and just get around the, the empowering ones. You know, so those are the kind of messages that I like to, to spread around and try and encourage people to take on board. Before I let you go, because I know you've got a busy day ahead, Can you indulge us with a bit of the Invictus Games? I said in the introduction, 11 medals, five of them gold. And I suppose that's where I know you most from, from those fantastic pictures of you with the medal around your chest and with Prince Harry smiling and presumably thrilled with your achievements. What's it like being part of the Invictus Games? That was 
phenomenal for me for a number of different reasons. First of all, because when I was injured, I never thought I'd have the opportunity to represent my country again, which is something that has always been important to me. But the Invictus Games gave me that opportunity and that platform to wear a Team UK tracksuit and to go out there and show the rest of the world what this tiny little island is actually capable of doing. And second of all, you know, I'd never done adaptive sport before. Like back in my early days of rehab, my main goal was to become a full-time prosthetic user and prove that doctor wrong. I, I had no interest in sport. I said earlier, you know, my background is in martial arts and I couldn't do any of that with no legs and one arm. And none of the other sports that were on offer appealed to me. So it was actually my 10-year anniversary. And I was sat at this desk and I decided that to celebrate 10 years, I was going to do something I'd not done before. And that's how the Invictus Games came about. And I was lucky enough to be selected for the team. I went out to Canada in 2017, Australia 2018, and stepped out of my comfort zone and showed the world what, what we can do. So transformational experience on many different levels. And what about the, the sports, the actual ones that you took part in? Because you say you're not much of a runner or you're not fond of running. Mm-hmm. What was your forte out there? So it was indoor rowing, swimming, hand cycling and athletics shot put and discus and was it an honor and a pleasure to meet prince harry absolutely yeah i mean we've met loads of times over the years and he's always been genuine and honest and i'll go as far as saying a friend you know he's a really really good guy who genuinely has the the welfare and the well-being of the military and the veteran community at its heart you can see that it's absolutely genuine and I think a final word really maybe to Becky and the children because I'm sure that on this journey that you've been on since 2007 I hate that word journey but it fits I guess doesn't it it is a journey Mm. I'm imagining Mrs Ormrod has been by your side I saw her at the Pride of Britain looking beautiful but what kind of support have the kids and Becky been to you over these last few years? I said just now about the importance of having good people around you in going out and achieving your goals and everything. That, I don't just mean that professionally, I mean that personally as well. The family unit I've got, I am so lucky to have. Whatever it is I want to do, I always kind of put it past them, but I already know what the answer is going to be. Literally, I think it was yesterday morning I was in the shower and I said, bet, I've got a bit of slack time coming up before Christmas. I think I could probably go to Birmingham, London, do this, do that and everything. She went, just do what you need to do, Mark. Go out and do it. And she works full-time as well. We're constantly juggling school runs and, and the kids' clubs and all that kind of stuff. She's never like, oh, no, don't do this. Oh, you're being selfish. If, if I am, she'll tell me, obviously. But her default setting is do what you need to do. Go out there and do what you need to do because she's on board with the mission as well. She sees where it's all heading and she knows that it's, it's for the benefit of all of us. And what's next, Mark? Any other crazy thing you're going to do in between doing your film and doing some more fundraising? Any other ideas that have popped up in the shower? Do you know what? I, literally, there was there was a not-so-positive incident that happened this year what kind of pushed me over the, the line to go and get an agent. And so now I have representation and the opportunities that are coming from there are phenomenal. I'm a big fan of variety. I love to do loads of different things. And what Katie, my agent, has has got going on for me is phenomenal. So I'm unbelievably excited about the future and and all the opportunities and possibilities that are going to come my way. And when they do come, I'm going to grab them with, with one hand and one hook 
and just run with them and, and see what we can make of it. Well, do you know what, Mark? I am hoping that I get the opportunity to meet you in real life at some point and buy you a beer. You've been yeah. an amazing podcast guest, so generous with your story and and so inspirational. This whole podcast series is aimed at inspiring people. And boy, I, I leave you from this podcast today feeling like anything is achievable. I think you're awesome, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. You've been listening to former Royal Marine Mark Ormrod, the only British triple amputee to survive the conflict in Afghanistan. Check out Mark's book, Man Down, which will form the basis of a film about his life. And we're hoping that film will end up in cinemas all over the world. And I can't see any reason why that wouldn't happen, actually. And Mark is also well worth a follow on socials. I forgot to ask him, but he's just had an amazing portrait of himself done, which I saw on his Instagram the other day. So check out Mark on socials too. Download our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or, of course, ask Alexa. I'll be back next week with another great guest, so bye for now.